This is a recording made in the chapter of the open book and is number four of the series dealing with the book of the Revelation. It is our custom to read a chapter or so at this meeting and those of you who are listening to this recording, will you switch off for a moment and read with us the first chapter of the prophecy of Ezekiel and I want to remind you that I'm asking you to read this not that we shall understand it all but that you should get some idea of the way in which the imagery of the book of the Revelation is also found in the prophecy of Ezekiel, this imagery concerning the throne of God and the outworking of his purposes. Excuse this long preamble, it was to just warn you that it's going to be a difficult chapter to understand. I think those of us who have read this first chapter are very conscious that there's material here that baffles us. I don't suppose it was ever written that we should be able to penetrate it and explain it, <coughs> but I think it gives us enough to realise the overwhelming majesty of God and those who are directly associated with the outworking of his purpose. I suppose you do know that the word amber, which comes in this passage, supplies us with the word electricity. Uh, because in the first case they found that by rubbing amber on a piece of flannel it made little bits of paper dance about. And the word for amber was electro or electron. And in the Septuagint version of the Bible there's the word electron used 300 years before Christ. There's nothing new under the sun in that sense. And then you will come across little features. The uh, reference to the feet like burnished brass. You remember this, the image of our Saviour in Revelation chapter 1? Now, there's something about it here that anticipates that, although not speaking in exactly the same terms. We should also be thrown back on Isaiah chapter 6, where with twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And uh, further, we find that they are likened to burning coals, or lamps, and in the book of the Revelation we've got the lamps, which are represented <coughs> in connection with the seven spirits of God. And then these wheels. The prophet was overwhelmed by them apparently, but just exactly what it all meant. Some of them were terrific, he said. They terrified him. And they went straight forward. He, he couldn't help noticing. Well, when they were sent on a job, they did it. I wonder whether that's the ideal of service. They went straight forward. They turned neither to the right hand nor to the left. And that passage which says the wheel in the middle of a wheel is what we say sometimes about a very complicated piece of business. It's a wheels within wheels. And truly that's true of the purpose of God. For when we think we know something of the purpose of the ages, there's an unrest that comes up and wants to find its place. And once more we're back again, you see. And so I felt it was a wise thing, even though I wouldn't attempt to explain this passage just to get the feeling of it as we go to the Revelation again. And one more feature, and that is, it ends up with the likeness of a man. A likeness of a man. We're gradually being led to see there is one who dominates all these wheels and cherubim and whatnot. And then somebody may say, where do you find the cherubim? Well, I just wanted to make sure, if you'll turn to Ezekiel chapter 10, he explains that these beings, which he has there described and given no name, he now gives them by that name, so that we shall settle that before we go into the New Testament. Ezekiel 10, um, he speaks in verse 11 about their four sides. He speaks in verse 14 about their four faces. He gives them the face of a man and the face of a lion and the face of an eagle and so on. And then, in um, verse 20, this is the living creature. Now, that's another connection with the book of the Revelation. In the book of the Revelation, we have the word beasts coming. Four beasts. Well, that's such a great pity, because there is another word for a beast, which means a wild beast, which is used of the Antichrist or his um, the Antichristian kingdom. So that the word Zoah should be better translated, as we have it here, you see, the word zoe and the word zoe means to do with living. It's our word that gives us the word zoo and zoological. Uh, 
The living creature is the reference to these cherubim. Now he said, this is the living creature that I saw under the rod of Israel by the river of Kedar, and I knew that they were the cherubim. That's where the word cherubim comes in the story. So we've got so far, at least, that whether we can penetrate and explain all this, that these living creatures with these four heads and four faces were the cherubim. Well, with that, we'll come to the book of the Revelation, and this time we're considering the testimony of chapter 4. In our previous study, we were looking at the message to the seven churches, and we didn't get very much further than emphasizing two things. One, that every church was particularly concerned with him that overcometh. And the overcomer is the thread upon which this tremendous book of the Revelation is strung. Things in heaven and things in hell and things halfway between are in the book, but are all to do with the little struggling remnant that at last overcome and live and reign with Christ. And then the other aspect in the, um, in the book of the Revelation where the seven churches is that we found that every one of them was given a promise which linked them with the book of the Revelation itself and with no other period. The name of the New Jerusalem, the tree of life in the paradise of God, we found that there was a direct link between those seven churches and the rest of the book. Well now we come to the beginning of the visions that John had to write and explain as far as possible uh, in the sense that he said, what you see, write, and when you've written it, you know that these things are coming hereafter. So that's more or less where we are now. So chapter 4. After this, I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet, talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. So now we've started. We've gone, with, uh, we've come to the point where the words, I was in spirit, come the second time in this book. In the first chapter, he said, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And there are some who said that meant he was rather spiritually minded one Sunday. I put it that way because you say, well, I don't think that's what it can mean somehow. No. Here's the meaning of the word, I was in spirit. These things haven't taken place yet. And John, in spirit, could be translated and transferred to see them. And so he could be translated and transferred to the yet future day of the Lord. And from that aspect, write the whole book as one. And what did he see? I was immediately, I was in spirit, and behold, a throne. A throne. I want to stop here for a bit. Out of the 61 occurrences of the word throne, 46 of them occur in the book of the Revelation. 46 times in this book we get an emphasis upon the word throne. And I do hope that you're such Bereans that you search and then you come and tell me that I've made a mistake. Because so many times, alas, the authorised translators have chosen to use the word seat instead of throne. Well, that's a mistake because of the proper word for seat. And the word throne should be given every time. You will find in the one of the churches, that's the church at Pergamos, that we read um, verse 13, chapter 2. And, and, and I'll read verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath a sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. Well, that's all right. Satan's seat of authority. But we might as well know it's exactly the same word as the throne of God, the great white throne. We don't get any benefit out of it by saying the great white seat. It's thrones all the time. It's one throne over against the other which are now coming into prominence. The throne of God. The throne of the Lamb. The throne of those who occupy it because they're overcomers. And Satan's throne, with his myrmidons, with his followers, and the battle between the two. One of the things I think we do well to remember is the emphasis upon the fact that here we have a throne. And I would like to turn you back immediately to one psalm 
which I think fits the story and should give us some sort of consciousness of rest. Psalm, chapter, verses, uh, Psalm 11, verses 3 and 4. Psalm 11. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Well, as you read this book of the Revelation, it's pandemonium, it's chaos. The foundations are being destroyed. The world is going to rack and ruin. What can the righteous do? Well, it doesn't debate the question. It simply goes straight off and says, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in the heavens. You see, that's the answer. That's the first vision of the book of the Revelation. Chapter 4. I saw a throne. Don't forget that God is sovereign. Don't forget that the first king of this Gentile dominion that ends up with the book of the Revelation wrote these words and they're put in the prophecy of Daniel. He said, I came to see that the heavens do rule and the Most High gives the kingdom to whomsoever he will. And there comes a moment when we've got to remember that however much we stress that God is love and God is merciful and God is gracious and God is long-suffering, we remember that he is holy and he is sovereign. And there comes a moment when long-suffering has reached its limit and the purpose of God cannot be delayed longer. And here we're beginning to get the sense of it. The foundations are destroyed. What can the righteous do? For he can't do much. But at least he can stay himself upon this God. For he says, this God is in his holy temple and the Lord's throne is in heaven. You notice the link there between the temple and the throne. An ordinary Gentile wouldn't see any suggestiveness. A Jew would see that here was something that was suggestive. Because in the ordinary way, the temple and the throne were kept apart in Israel. And Isaiah, the king, who dared to try to usurp the priest's office, died a leper. And in the same year that Isaiah the leper died, Isaiah saw a vision of a throne in the temple, and the one who sat on that was there right. For Christ is never going to be king. What were you say? Oh, I didn't, I stopped myself, didn't I? He's never going to be king only. The people of Israel, according to the book, will have accepted him as king. But he must be accepted as a king-priest. And that touches the heart and the conscience and the question of sin and is a bit awkward. That's the only king that God will recognize. And that's the only priest that he will recognize. And the saviour is the one alone who can combine those two offices. And the time has come when the revelation begins to bring this forth. So we must remember, we've got a throne. You remember the prophet Daniel in the midst of all this. Is, I saw thrones and they were set and judgment was there. Oh yes, there comes a moment when this assize is set up and there's no avoiding it this time. So we've got now the first vision. I saw a throne. Shall we turn our attention for a moment to the general outline of this passage so that we can make get the value of the disposition of subject matter. It's very, very brief. You see I've got this seven-rolled sealed scroll on the top which has to be opened. We'll look at that as the time comes. Now we have the first vision in heaven occupying chapters 4 to the end of chapter 5. And it falls into two parts. The throne, the elders, and the living ones, or the cherubim. And then we hear in verses 8 to 11, and the four living creatures, they had six wings, and they rest not night, day and night saying. They say things. And that's where they stop. But when you get to the next section, there's the throne and the book. There's the lion and the lamb. The lamb is not seen in the throne in chapter 4. But he comes forward in chapter 5. The lamb. And then we have not only saying. But they have a song. And I suppose we are right when we say that only the redeemed can sing. In this sense. So now we've got in the first vision a double aspect. First of all creation. Then redemption. Now these two are joined together in the mind of God. The six days creation, the seventh day rest, was to provide a platform 
and a prophecy for the outworking of a redemptive purpose. And the first man put upon the earth was the shadow of him that was to come. The second man, the last Adam, was seen the moment Adam was created. He was created in the likeness and the image of God. And the image of God is Christ. So that we're not surprised to discover that we move from the throne in the sense of a sovereignty to the emphasis upon the fact that the one who was in the midst of the throne was a lamb. But not merely a lamb, we're anticipating. A lamb as it had been slain. For there's no idea that there's any efficacy in a lamb by itself. It's only the lamb that was slain that makes the redemption which is going to be at last enjoyed possible. So now we have the, the throne. And one that sat upon it. It's not an empty throne. There's somebody occupying it. And the one who occupies it is indescribable. He that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. Fancy trying to describe somebody and liken him to stones. Well, these were magnificent stones and they have apparently something more than meets the eye. I'd like you to turn back to Ezekiel. Oh, not chapter 1 this time, friends, no. Chapter 28. Now, you know chapter 28 re reveals something about a cherub that fell, who was created perfect but fell. Let's get one verse here. Ezekiel 28. Verse 13. This cherub, thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Now, as far as we go by the scriptures, if we don't add to them or take away from them, Eden, the garden of God, was occupied by man, Adam, and Eve. And nobody else was there except the Lord God, who walked in the cool of the day. And one other. For in that garden of Eden was the, the old serpent, the dragon, which is called the devil and Satan. Well, it says, this one was in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering. The sardius, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, emerald, carbuncle, and gold. What a description to give of anybody. You see, it's almost beyond the possibility of human language and figure to describe a spiritual person. So it's using these precious stones to give you some idea. And it says in verse 14, Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth. And that word is very, very suggestive because the anointed is the word Messiah. So Christ was anticipated, you see, in these early days by someone who had a tremendous office and place that was cast out as profane. Whether we should ever probe it in this life, we could only get hints from these passages, but we'll have to think of that again presently. Come back to Revelation 4. The uh, jasper and the sardine stone and other similar stones like it are found embedded in the foundations of the New Jerusalem. These stones were also in the breastplate of Aaron. So whether we understand them or not, they're there. They have some significance. And the very first description of he that sat upon the throne is linking the breastplate of Aaron, the cherub that fell, and the foundations of the New Jerusalem, as much as to say, and he having that likeness is indicating to us that that purpose, which apparently failed, which will be picked up and carried through by the true Messiah, will uh, eventually succeed. And then we have, round about the throne, were four and twenty seats. Now the word throne is twice in that verse, you see, four and twenty thrones. And upon the uh, thrones I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns. They were cra They were on a throne. Now this goes back to the disposition of the um, priests and the officers in the temple according to the commandment of God given to David and to Solomon that they were to have 24 courses. And it even went to the extreme that there were not only 24 courses of priests but there were 24 porters. The 24 was multiplied. And they were only pictures of the executive of God, as it were, that he uses these instruments. The elders 
the angels that sound their trumpets, the cherub that pours out the fire, they're all the instruments of God. And they're all associated with this throne with which the revelation commences. And then we read about the lamps in verse 5. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Ezekiel tells us about the lamps, but he doesn't tell us, tell us anything about the seven spirits of God. In the book of the Revelation, we have the seven spirits of God, which are also likened to eyes. In the prophet Zechariah, that, that uh, see, as it were, everything omnipotently, uh, omnisciently by God all over the earth. So we piece them together a little bit, and we're still baffled, but there it is. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal, something similar to the street that John describes in the heavenly Jerusalem. These are all anticipations of the purpose that's coming. Have I missed out something? I think I have, yes. In verse 3, there's a rainbow. You remember how the rainbow was instituted by God in the days of Noah? When a dreadful um, crisis happened in the life of humanity, when there was such an invasion by spirit powers as to make it necessary for God to say, I will destroy man that I have made on the earth. And now we have a rainbow again. And here we have a stress upon the fact that it was like an emerald. And now as far as we know there are six or seven colours in the rainbow and only one of them is green. And this one has a predominance in the green. And it may be there's a thought there of something that's symbolical of mercy yet to be shown. I don't know. But I do know the rainbow is an indication of a pledge of something. He is a rainbow-circled throne, a pledge that God is going to keep his word. At the other end of the story, there's a great white throne, another em emphasis on another aspect of the throne of God. Then we have brought before us these four beasts in verse 6. Now, I told you just now that it's a pity that we've got one word in the book of the Revelation to translate two very distinct words. When it says, I saw a beast rise out of the sea, the anti-Christian monster. That's not the word used here at all. But the ordinary English reader has got nothing to guide him. So I suggest you follow the cue, both of the Greek word Zoah and the Old Testament rendering, living creature. It's a bit better than having a lot of beasts all around the throne of God, isn't it? Living ones. And we're told what they were like. A lion, a calf, a man, an eagle. And then it says, they had six wings. And they were full of eyes within them. They rest not day and night saying, Holy, Holy Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. Now that throws us back on Isaiah 6, doesn't it? But before we go back to Isaiah 6, let's look at the remaining verses of this chapter. And when those living creatures give glory and honour and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, Thou art worthy. Now we have an ascription of praise. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honour and power. For thou hast created all things and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Not a word about redemption. Just creation, calling forth this ascription of praise from these living creatures. Now if you glimpse at chapter 5, after the Lamb of God comes on the scene, verse 12, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb. Ah, is the word worthy again. First of all, worthy is the Creator. But how much more worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honour, and glory, and one word that's never used in connection with the creation, blessing. And every creature which is in heaven, and on the earth, and under the earth, and such as are in the sea, and all that are in them, heard I say, blessing, and honour, and glory, and power, be unto him that sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb for ever and ever. It's majesty, isn't it? Whether we enter into it 
intelligently or not. There's a consciousness of something very majestic about these opening verses. Well now we would, we're going to look back at Isaiah 6. Because we have the uniting there of the uh, throne and the priesthood very markedly. And we have also the reference to these mighty beings which are there called seraphim. Isaiah 6. In the year that King Isaiah died, now you see there's a reason for this, isn't there? It doesn't say in the 25th year of so-and-so, but in the year that King Isaiah died, why why should he say that? Well, we already know that Isaiah dared to united his own person, kingship and priesthood, and died a leper. In the year that that king died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne. And he was high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. So here's a throne in the temple. And he is the only one who could. The prophet Zechariah said, the council of peace shall be between them both the king and the priest. Above it stood the seraphim. Well now you may say to me, ah, but these are seraphim, not cherubim. Yes, but what is the meaning of the word seraphim? It simply means something that's glowing and burning. Well they describe the cherubim as glowing and burning and like lamps and lightnings and whatnot. So the cherubim can be seraphim if they are blazing and shining. So they're the same. These are the living creatures, just the same. They act just the same as in Revelation 4, but they've got just that other title. Above it stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. That's a fine definition of Christian service too. Christian service isn't using all the wings to take meetings and travel miles. These mighty beings used four of their wings to recognize the holiness of the God they served and two were quiet enough to fly with. Don't you think we need that sometimes to be emphasized to us? And one cried unto another is the very same words as the Revelation chapter 4. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The margin puts it the other way around. His glory is the fullness of the whole earth and that's a better rendering thing. It's one thing to say that the whole earth is full of his glory when it wasn't. It's another thing to say his glory is the fullness of the whole earth and if only you poor creatures would cease looking after your own glory and do all to the glory of God you'd be so full of blessing you wouldn't know what to do with it. You see? That's what's coming. Oh, it's here. All right. And then you remember the sequel. So we come back to chapter 4 of the Revelation. And take one or two more points before we bring this very, very sketchy survey to a conclusion. There are one or two psalms that form a cluster. Oh, we are. We're going back to Revelation 4, so we go back somewhere else. But it's just a matter of getting the light from other scriptures on this great day. And there's a group of them. Psalm 93 onwards. So as we're going to look at more psalms than one, you won't mind turning to them, I hope. Psalm 93 commences this group. The Lord reigneth. This is the same introduction, you see. The very first words, like the revelation. I saw a throne, and he sat upon it, so he's reigning. The Lord reigneth. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed with strength, wherewith he hath girded himself. The world also is established, that he cannot be moved. Thy throne is established of old, thou art from everlasting, and so on. The majesty of that one who sat upon the throne. And we go on and we can see in other of these um, psalms something of the same. You see, take for instance 95. All can that come to the sing unto the Lord that us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation, giving praise to him, for the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. And then we have in verse 97, The Lord reigneth, let the earth rejoice and let the multitude of isles be glad. In verse um, 
6, or verse 4 says, Make a joyful noise, and in verse 6, With trumpets and sound of cornet, make a joyful noise before the Lord the King. I reckon they didn't let it go when they had their bands and orchestra and what in the temple. I don't suppose that they satisfied the, the uh, critics who go to the um, festival hall, you know. Uh, I don't suppose it was music in the sense that we understand it. It had been a weird business and it says, the loud sounding tits, symbols, give them a go, you know, crashing and shouting, joyful noise because of the Lord being king. Psalm 99. The Lord reigneth. Let the people tremble. He sitteth between the cherubim. That's where they come in again, friends, and that gives me my cue, because we've got to consider why these cherubims should be so many times associated with God. We are told that he dwelleth between the cherubim. Well, now, where do they first come into the story? You remember they come into the story at the last verse of Genesis chapter 3. We are told at the last verse of Genesis chapter 3 that the Lord caused to tabernacle, the word tabernacle isn't there in the English, but it's there in the original, there was a tabernacle at the door of the Garden of Eden when man was expelled and the cherubim were there and a flaming sword that turned every way to keep, to keep, not to destroy, to keep and preserve the way to the tree of life, Genesis 3. And the way to the tree of life is opened in Revelation 21. It's there, anticipated. The paradise lost in Genesis is gained in Revelation chapter 21 and chapter 22. So there's a purpose. Why these four peculiar faces? They must be symbolic. I suppose none, nobody here really thinks that they are walking about on the crystal sea of heaven animals with four heads. Of course, there was one lady who used to come to this meeting and I told her whenever she came, I'd bring the word cherubim in for her benefit. And I did, because we had a little secret between us. Because she was very disappointed when I told her when she went to heaven, I don't suppose she'd see one of the cherubim, for they were symbolic creatures. I don't know as they exist as described like that. But the description is symbolical. Why these four heads? A man... A lion, an ox, and an eagle. Well, there's Adam right back in the beginning. He never attended a church or chapel. He never read anything that was written or published. There he was. And that's what he saw. Man had been given dominion over the beast of the field, the cattle, and the fowl of the air. And he'd lost it. Lost it. Don't you think when he looked at that group, man, lion, ox, Eagle, he may have said, that might have been my position. I've lost it. But God's preserving it. Or we come again, move up the story, and we come, well, let's look at the chart, because that may help us. I've already referred you to Ezekiel 28, haven't I? That long before man came into the story, there was some being that was perfect in wisdom and beauty and had a place that made him an anointed cherub. But he fell. I'll put that first. The anointed cherub is Paul. Now a man comes on the story, and at the gate of the garden, where he forfeited and lost the right to the tree of life, there was that pledge that man and the creation that was put under the dominion of man should one day be put under that other man Ezekiel said, I saw the likeness of the appearance of a man there, anticipating the man, the second man, the last Adam. Well, then we move to Exodus chapter 25, and God says, make me a tabernacle, and in that tabernacle there was to be an ark and a mercy seat and cherubim. When the time came for Solomon to build his temple, he also had cherubim. The ones made in the tabernacle were made of gold. The ones in the temple of Solomon were made of olive wood. But they both overshadowed or stretched out their wings. And then Ezekiel, the same prophet that tells us that there was a fallen cherub that was cast out as profane, also gives you the cherubim in the opening chapters and you're told 
that as Ezekiel saw the glory of God leave the temple area and the city and the plain and disappear, the cherubim went with the glory and left Israel without. And then in the last chapters, when restoration is coming, he said, I saw the glory of God coming back the same way from the east, in the plain, in the city, in the temple area. And there shall be no more Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts forever. So the cherubim are all the time associated with the outworking of the purpose of God. But it's a redemptive purpose. Not merely creation. Because that mercy seat was to do with atoning blood. And then we come to Revelation where we have paradise restored. But you say there's one bit you haven't mentioned. Well, there's no mention of cherubim in the Gospels. But is it fantastic to say that just exactly in the right place where we get the parallel to the anointed cherub that fell we have the anointed one of God who succeeded. Because there are four Gospels and the testimony of antiquity is there's never been more or less than four Gospels and they can be denominated by these four faces. If I ask you what is the outstanding characteristic of Matthew, I hope you know enough about it to say king. Well, that's the lion. And if you look at the Gospel according to Mark, instead of giving you a genealogy, you see, you must have a genealogy for a king. And so it starts with David. Although, going back to Abraham, but it says, the son of David, the son of Abraham. King. But when you come to Mark's Gospel, there's no genealogy. He starts straight off with his witness. And in the ordinary way, you don't ask if you're going to engage a servant. Did your ancestors come over with William the Conqueror? You don't care what their genealogy is. It's their service. Then when you come to Luke's Gospel, oh, and the symbol for patient service in the Old Testament is the ox. And then you come to Luke's Gospel, and he's the only one that goes back to Adam. No other writer except Paul mentions Adam in the New Testament. He's the man. And then when you get to John, He's more likely to be set forth in the symbol of the flying eagle, where you'll get the ascension more times in John's Gospel than anywhere else. So we've got the man, the lion, the ox, the eagle, all gathered up in the person of Christ. And the cherubim are symbolic, as it were, of that mighty purpose worked out in him. Well now, I think we ought to go back just to get another little colouring to the prophecy of Daniel because these are related, the one to the other. <coughs> and we look at chapter 7. We've looked at it in part before. But that doesn't mean to say we know all about it and we can't do with a refresher. Daniel, the seventh chapter. Verse and um, chapter 7 he said I saw all this four beasts verse 3 come up out of the sea one's like a lion and another is like a bear and the other is like a leopard and the other is indescribable why four only? isn't it possible that just as God has his four as cherubim so the evil one's got his travesty. If Michael has his angels, the devil has his angels. If there are principalities and powers that are recognizing Christ and learning the wisdom of God through the church, there are principalities and powers that Christ stripped off and spoiled at the cross. They've got the two there. So we've got this almost travesty of the cherubim. Then in verse 9, I beheld till the thrones were cast down, which is rather awkward. This is the word that means to be placed or set. And the Ancient of Days did sit. That's the Old Testament name given for the one that sat upon the throne, whose garment was white as snow. And then we see in verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man. That title taken by Christ so many times in the Gospels. 
like the Son of Man, came with the clouds of heaven, and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion, and glory, and a kingdom, that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom that which will not be destroyed. I thought we ought to include that even though we've looked at it before. But now will you come back once more to the book of the Revelation and notice one feature only. We can't cram all into one study, but we can drop these hints one at a time. You notice, don't you, how many, many times in spite of all the gorgeous colourings of gold and purple and emerald and jasper and what not, the word white comes. White. Of course you're not supposed to know or you're not supposed to say that white is composed of all the colours of the rainbow because some people look at you and think you're crazy. But you can demonstrate it if you like. You may know and may have seen if you had a, 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 a good schooling you may have seen Newton's disc, where all the colours are blended and turn perfectly white. White contains all the colours that there are. And you only call a thing red because it holds back all, holds back all the other colours and throws red away. So what upside down people we are, aren't we? If you could see without, without light, you see, a thing that's red would be green. Got it? Well, I won't bother about that anyway. Here we have then, these ones that have got the white, instead of being drab and colourless, they've got it all. The red and the blue and the yellow and the green, they'll only get in little bits and that's all they've got. But all the white's got it all. So should we just use the next few minutes to notice how the emphasis comes upon white in this book. And that will be at least giving honour to the Spirit of God who has used it so many times. We go back to chapter 1. And we look at the description of Christ. Verse 13. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. And his head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were as a flame of fire. And his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace. And his voice as the sound of many waters. There's some magnificence there, friends. But you see, no purple, no red, no green, white. You remember on the Transfiguration Mountain? Whiter than any fuller on earth could whiten them. And just as the redeeming love of God enabled David to say, Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. So that raiment which those three men saw for that glimpse of the future kingdom they admitted it was whiter than any whiteness on earth. It's going to beat all the posters you see on the walls about whatever name they call them, about whiter than something else. Here's where God will come in with his whiteness in his own good time. Well, let's look at chapter 2, 17. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone. Now, they used to give stones as a sort of symbol, a secret between them, because he goes on to say, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, save he that receiveth it. But I notice it's not jasper, it's not emerald, it's not any of these, a white stone. All right, we come on to chapter 3, verse 4. Thou hast a few names even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments. They shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And verse 5, He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment. That's his reward. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. Then chapter 4, verse 4, And round about the, the, the throne were four and twenty thrones. And upon the thrones I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed with white raiment. You see? Not magnificence in the sense of blue or purple or scarlet, just white. And chapter 6, verse 2. 
And I saw, behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him had a bow, a white horse. Other horses are mentioned, but the one that goes first is the travesty of the one that comes out of heaven, ultimately, as we shall see in chapter 19. But let's go on, chapter 6, 11. Oh, in verse 10, And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto them. White robes, an indication that they were overcomers. And chapter 7, verse 9, and after this I beheld and lo a great multitude which no man could number of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. And again in verse 13 And one of the elders answered saying unto me What are these which are arrayed in white robes? And whence came they? And I said unto him Sir thou knowest and he said unto me, These are they which came out of great tribulation, and have washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Of course, in the blood is misdirected. Because of what the blood stands for, these who may have been defiled in themselves are now washed white by reason of the blood of the Lamb. And then we come to chapter 14, verse 4. These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. We don't use the word virgin in ordinary conversation of a man, but it means much the same thing in this way. And you must remember the awful times that were upon the earth when these things were written. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits unto God and of the earth. Now, uh, I thought that I had here the reference to the to the, the white. Have I missed it? Maybe coming presently. Let's look at chapter nineteen. Chapter nineteen. Verse eleven. And I saw him opened, and behold a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. Somebody may say, you've missed out the reference in verse 8. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. But you may have a marginal notice in your Bible that that word white is something that's shining like a lamp. It's made up of the word lamp. Of course it means white, but it's not one of the same words that we're looking at. So that's chapter 19, verse 11. And again in verse 14. And the armies which in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And the last reference is chapter 20, verse 11. And I saw a great white throne. I wonder. With all this emphasis upon white, why should this be a white throne? If it's the judgment of the ungodly and the wicked of all time, you'd think it'd be a black one, wouldn't you? Or a red one. But it's a white one. Well, when we get through to this passage in the book of the Revelation, I shall try to demonstrate to you that this white throne has nothing to do with the judgment of the ungodly outside. It has to do with him that overcometh or failed to overcome. It's the second part of the resurrection which is mentioned the first resurrection being the former of two. If we translate it, this is the former resurrection, the mind says, is there a one to come? Yes, here's the one to come. But that's another story. Well, all I, could, all I was able to do is to emphasize the uh, magnificence without attempting to explain that which is beyond me. Seven times over in this um, um, book, we get an emphasis upon worthy. And all these are key words which it does us good to become acquainted with. When we meet together next time, we shall leave the great white throne and its stress upon creation to someone who is to be accounted worthy to something even more wonderful. The first vision ends up with 
Worthy art thou, because thou hast created. And the staggering word comes in chapter 5. There was no one in heaven or earth who was worthy to open that book and break the seals. And if nobody had been worthy, friends, there would be no redemption for you or me and no goal that God would reach, no end to his purpose, no ultimate blessing and glory. But isn't it grand to know that John who said he wept because there was no one worthy, oh, he said, I discovered there was. And the discovery is that which we ourselves have already made by his mercy. We're anticipating what we'll look last next time, but it will do it twice over. He was told that it was a lion that was the one that was worthy. And when he looked, he didn't see a lion. I saw a lamb. And he didn't see a lamb. Only, I saw a lamb as it had been slain. And those folks who are going to have a Bible without redeeming love have got a Bible that dishonours the God who wrote it. And those who preach a gospel that has no reference to the redeeming love of Christ and him crucified have a gospel that the Apostle Paul says was another gospel that could not bring honour to God or salvation to men. And so we end our study on that note this evening and pray that as we go through, the difficulties may be unrolled, as it were. And if we get to the end and we say there's more things left unexplained than we've had explained to us, I shall say to you, well, cheer up, friends. A day is coming when the scripture says, we shall know even as we are known. God only hides from us those things which have no reference to our own individual salvation and peace. He hasn't given books in the Bible to make us second-rate prophets or, in, or to tell us of all the fearful things that must come on the earth before the end comes. But he's given sufficient to be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path and may we grateful, be grateful for the fact that he has condescended so far to speak in these terms to us.